<clears throat> well, friends, let me add a little bit more fuel to the fire. Uh, let me read you an excerpt from a book by Peter Radetzky called The Soviet Image. He says, by the onset of winter, the city had no heating, no water supply, almost no electricity, and very little food. In the January of 1942, in the depth of brutal cold winter, food rations in the city fell to a quarter pound of bread per day. The city turned into a vast garden with people growing food everywhere a root would take hold. The citizens ate roots, rats, wood, books, and each other. The daily bombardment, starvation, disease, and cold had killed almost half of Leningrad's inhabitants. In a cold winter of 1942 alone, 600,000 people would die of starvation. You'll be walking down the streets of Leningrad, and if the constant bombing of the Nazi Germany wasn't enough, it would be a very frequent occurrence that you would see somebody falling down on the ground, dying of starvation right in a bright daylight. You see, the food was, became so sparse that people would be eating pancakes made out of clay. People would be making soup out of soles of their shoes. Rat meat became a big luxury. One of the most delightful things that kids were given were these oatmeal version of things made out of cut up glass paper. Sprinkled with a little bit of bits of beetroot. Over the course of this entire siege, over one million people would die. And you see, it's in the context of that kind of environment that we hear the music of Isaiah chapter 9. The handles Messiah. The unto us a child is given. You see, I could have chosen many different versions of that story to show you. I could have shown you the genocide, genocide in Rwanda. I could have shown you the scenes from starving Ethiopia. I could have shown you the atrocities in the prisons in Iraq. And we could go on and on and on, because that's the context in which we hear the birth of Jesus. You see, friends, a lot of ways we have gotten used to hearing the music of Christmas in this cheery environment. The most drama that is attached to Christmas is Charlie Brown's existential struggle over peer pressure, whether to get an aluminum shiny Christmas tree or not. And yet, Christmas is about something much deeper and much more profound. In the same way I just had you hear the words of Isaiah chapter 9, because that's what Handel's Messiah, that section is all about. Against the background of atrocities that go on in the 20th century. The same way these words were heard in the 8th century B.C. In the midst of very similar, very turbulent environment. You see, when Isaiah chapter 9 opens up with verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In a former time he had brought to contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later times he had made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. Now these words don't drop down in some kind of vacuum. You see, in the 8th century BC, the Assyrian military machine comes down and wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel. And the first lands, the first frontiers of the assault 
are the land of Nebulim, Zebulun and Naphtali. So you see, if you are sitting on the outskirts of Zebulun, you know what's coming at you. You know that Assyrians are known for not taking prisoners. You know that they are known for impaling their prisoners on large wooden sticks. And those that did choose not to impale, they cut off their heads and build these large monuments to mark off the destruction. And they leave those skulls rotting in those conquered territories as a sign that was supposed to infuse fear and utter terror and be a constant reminder of who is really in charge. And it's against this background. If you're sitting on the outskirts of Zebulun or Naphtali, you're probably wondering, is there any hope for the future? Is there anything ahead in the same way if you were living in the underground, in, the, in this little cutouts in Leningrad, and you see the scenes where people are coming out from underground, and you're sitting there in darkness, you're wondering, is there any hope left? And maybe today, you and I are facing all sorts of struggles in our lives, and we've come to the edge of our experience, and we're wondering if there's any hope left. And we know, in the words of John Eldridge, listen to what he says. He says, one of the most poisonous of all Satan's whispers is simply, things will never change. That lie kills the expectations, trapping our hearts forever in the present. To keep desire alive and flourishing, we must renew our vision of what lies ahead. Things will not always be like this. Jesus has promised to make all things new. Eye has not seen and ear hasn't heard all that God has in store for his lovers. Which doesn't mean we have no clue, so don't even try to imagine. But rather, you cannot outdream God. Desire is kept alive by imagination, the antidote to resignation. We will need imagination, which is to say we will need hope. You see, when we come to Isaiah chapter 9, we're given nothing other than God's very own dream. God's very own dream that in the 8th century, through the words of prophet Isaiah, were heard. Isaiah chapter 9 tells us, that there is ahead of time, that one day a glorious king will come. A spectacular king will emerge. And he will bring the stunning reversal of fortunes. But it's a dream that has to wait for 800 years. And when Jesus steps on the scene, when he moves to Capernaum, it is a strategic move because Matthew chapter 4 tells us that Capernaum is in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. In essence, when Jesus makes that geographic move of changing the zip code of his habitation, he's telling to the world around him and to you and I that that dream that originated through the words of prophet Isaiah is now becoming true. That that is the script that he's going to take on. That this is the prophecy that is speaking of him. That he's the one who's going to react and reenact this vision and this dream of God for the spectacular king who's going to bring the stunning reversal of fortunes. And we're going to unpack all that tonight. So would you pray with me? Father, we stand before you. 
we are in your presence and Lord we know that uh, the hallmark tells us that <clears throat> Christmas is about us and yet Bible drags us into the different reality and tells us it has nothing to do with us it has nothing to do with what kind of a turtle's vest we're going to wear or um, how much eggnog we're going to consume uh, what kind of a new video game we're going to receive or how many new pairs of jeans our parents going to give us but Lord that your Christmas is about your dreams that you are indeed the Christmas inventor and you are doing something and you give us the stunning gift you're giving us the gift of a king a king who's going to bring a stunning amazing dazzling reversal of fortunes and Lord we long for that. We're grateful for this amazing transformation that has begun. And we cannot wait for its fulfillment. And tonight, Lord, we open our hearts to you. And Lord, I pray that our hearts will lay bare before you. That you would stretch us, that you would challenge us, and you would speak to us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9 tells us in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, and of the peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In essence, Isaiah goes on and describes this spectacular king. And this is a king that has several names that are attributed to him. And this is an ancient Near Eastern version of, uh, this is what a lot of the different, if you go and you can find different nations throughout ancient Near East doing the same thing. Ascribing this list of names to their kings. And Isaiah is actually more moderate. He chooses four. Because he says, I can pick four names that will adequately describe what this king is going to be like. And if you let this four things sink into your heart, it will change your life. First of all, he starts out and he tells us that he's a wonderful counselor. And again, we've got to hear all this against the backdrop of the political realities that go on. You see, during Isaiah's time, we've got this king Ahaz, who is on the throne of Judah. He's a Davidic king who does not look like a Davidic king. You see, he's engaged in all sorts of political shenanigans and propaganda. He's tried to play off of Assyria, who's far away but more powerful, against his neighbors, Syria and Ephraim, that are less powerful but nearby. And he's trying to play this double political game, trying to keep everybody at bay, all along comes Isaiah and says, Ahaz, you don't need to play political games. All you need to do is trust Yahweh. And you see, against this backdrop of a king, a Davidic king who acts in fear and resorts to politics in order to survive, Isaiah tells us that a day will come and the king will emerge who will be a wonderful counselor, who will have wisdom and discernment to lead his people in a way Ahaz will never be able to do it. But not only that, but we're told that he's a mighty God. 
You see, the, the Hebrew word here is El Gabor. It's only used twice. It's used here, and it's used Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21. And a lot of the liberal scholars will be kind of a, uneasy about this Messiah having a divine nature. And they will try to do all sorts of acrobatics to go around it. And they will say, well, he is the mighty warrior who has divine kind of a capacities. And I would say, well, look at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, and show me a single commentary on a single Old Testament scholar that looks at that text and attributes to anything but Yahweh. You see, here is a picture that says he will be El Gabor. Gabor is the mighty one. It's the mighty warrior. He's saying this is going to be a god. This is going to be the one who has a divine nature, who's going to himself step in. And Isaiah probably, whether does he understand fully the picture of Jesus? But when Jesus steps in, here he is. Fully human, fully divine one. And he's the one who has all the might and all the power within himself. So he doesn't have to rely on politics. He doesn't have to rely on all sorts of international allegiances. But he has within himself everything that is needed in order to lead his people with wisdom and then with power. But then he goes on and he says that he's the everlasting father. Actually, the better translation of that will be father forever. You see, many of us have horrible experiences with our parents. You see, many of us have had dads that didn't stay with us forever. They walked out on us, whether physically and literally or whether emotionally. And we are living a life where we feel like we are cosmic orphans. And Isaiah steps on the scene and he says, a day will come when there will be a king who will emerge, who will be at home. And you know what it's like when the good father is at home. That he will be the one who will meet all of our needs. He will be the one who will satisfy all of our desires. And he will be the one who will be the first one to stand in front of any danger or any kind of a threatening situation our life might experience. And then finally he goes on and he says, he will be the prince of peace. Many of us, when we think of the word prince, we think of a guy with strange tights and a furly shirt. But really, Sarai Shalom. This word prince really means the one who is the administrator. The one who is in authority to bring peace. And peace, not in just in the sense of there will be no destruction or there will be no more violence, even though that is a part of it. You see, the word shalom, in the Hebrew mind, it means that life as it should be. When things work together, when it's jointed well, and everything works and makes sense. So Isaiah looks forward to it and he says, a day will come. When that kind of a king will emerge. And many of us haven't had that kind of experience. We don't know in what categories to think is through. And probably the best passage in Old Testament that describes what it looks like when God steps on the scene in the midst of the turbulent historical reality is found in the book of Daniel in chapter 5. Here we're fast forwarding a little bit. And this is the time... After the Babylonian kingdom has come in. And King Nebuchadnezzar has ambushed Jerusalem. 
And he has wiped out the city. And the biggest, even though he, he takes people into exile, one of the most atrocious things he does, he ransacks the temple. And he takes all these golden vessels that are used in the worship of God. And he takes them back home to Babylon. And then in a little bit, when the next generation of the Babylonian emperors emerge, and you've got Belshazzar, and we're not quite sure whether it's the son of Nebuchadnezzar or the grandson, but, Nebuchadnezzar, but Belshazzar decides to throw the biggest frat party you could ever imagine. I mean, you've got the beer bung going on here, you got Black Eyed Peas music in the background, all kinds of a nasty stuff going on upstairs. And in the midst of this time, he decides, huh, I wonder if we could have a little drinking game going on with those vessels that my Pepe has brought from Jerusalem. So out come out these golden vessels that were used in the worship of Yahweh, and they're starting to have these little drinking games going on. And right smack in the middle of that situation, we're told that a hand appears and writes three words, one of them twice on the wall. And immediately the party stops. And Belshazzar cannot go on any longer. And all he wants to know is the interpretation of these words. In Daniel chapter 5, we have picking up here in verse 23. It says, Daniel tells him, You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of this house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways you have not honored? Then from his presence the hand was sent. And this is the writing that was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. <laughs> I love that when he tells him, God in whose hand is your breath. Before that, in Daniel chapter 5 verse 6, when the hand appears and starts writing on the wall. In verse 6 we're told this, then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. You see this phrase of his limbs gave way. Has stirred up all kinds of scholarly controversy in academia. Journal of Biblical Literature volume number 5. Has an article by a scholar named Al Walters called the uh, untying of nuts of the king, the physiology and word play in Daniel chapter 5. I'll spare you reading all 20 pages of this article. The bottom line is the actual text reads that the nuts of king's loins were untied. And Al Walters' conclusion is that this, it's very simple. He says the king craps himself. That's all what that means. So you see, God bears his hand, writes three words on the wall, 
and most powerful tyrant in the world cannot control his bowels anymore. <laughs> and friends, couple, we were laughing at that, but a couple of days ago as I was praying and you know, there's things that I was bringing before the Lord and I was wrestling through things that go on in our own lives. And God just brought me back to this passage. And it was a reminder again saying, Bacho, do you really believe that I am who I am? Do you really believe that I can bear my arm? I can write three walls on the wall and make the most powerful men in the universe lose control over his bowels. Can I take care of you? Can I meet all your needs? Do I have wisdom and discernment enough to guide your paths? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And friends, the same thing, same question. The Christmas raises for you, just as for me, is what kind of world do you and I live in? You see, Albert Camus, the French philosopher and atheist, tells us that as human beings, we're a result of random erotic sexual act on the sea of nothingness. Is that who we really are? And many of us, even though we say we're followers of Jesus, we act like that. Or is what Isaiah chapter 9 tells us is really true. That the one who we call our king is indeed a wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. And friend, I don't know where you are today in life. You know, some of you are wrestling with big decisions in life. You see, some of you want to take the step of faith and say, I want to go to a Christmas conference. I want to go on a summer project, but I'm not sure what my family is going to think about that. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to raise support to do that. And to that, my, my question is, if your God can bear his arm, write three words on the wall, and make the most powerful tyrant in the world crap his pants, can he provide for you? Can he work in your parents' hearts and minds? You see, some of you are making decisions about what you're going to do with your future. And you would love to grab your friends and go and stint, whether to Slovenia or whether to Venezuela. But you are not sure you can say no to that job or to that next step opportunity that you have in front of you. And my question for you tonight is this. If your God whom you worship can bear his arm, write three words on the wall... And make the most powerful tyrant in the world lose control over his bowels. Can he take care of your future? And you and I know that the answer is yes. Yes, he can. And Isaiah 9 goes there. He says, this powerful king can bring and will bring the stunning reversal of fortunes. And the way Isaiah 9 describes it, he says, people who have been in darkness suddenly see the light. You see, when, when Jesus steps on the scene, we are told by this text and by the fact that Jesus claims this text at his own, he's saying, your life that's been in a darkness, and biblically, whenever there's a picture of darkness, it's a picture of hopelessness, it's a picture of oppression. It's a picture of despair. You see, Brennan Manning tells us this. Listen to his words. He says this, There is nothing Jesus does not understand about the heartache 
that hangs like a cloud over the valley of history. In his being, he feels every separation and loss, every heart split open with grief, every cry of mourning down to the corridors of time. Jesus says, I understand. I know what it's like to be in the darkness. But guess what? Let the film roll. Let the kingdom of God play out, and I'll tell you where I'm taking the flow of history. People who've been in darkness will see the light. And whenever there's a picture of light, it's a picture associated with God's glory, with God's majesty, with God's magnitude, with God's sovereignty. Isaiah tells us that there will be joys in a time of harvest. You see, the harvest time in ancient Near East was a time of celebration, time where you threw a big party because God stepped on the scene and provided for you abundantly. And he's saying where I'm taking it is there will be the kind of a reversal as in a time of the Midian. And he takes them to the story of Gideon. Gideon, this nobody in the time of Judges who is hiding in a wine press because Midianites are oppressing Israel. And he's hiding this little bit of a grain that him and his dad have been able to hide away from Midianites who would come in and take everything. An angel of the Lord suddenly shows up and he says... Good morning, the mighty warrior. Gideon, mighty warrior, he's hiding in a wine press. He's thinking about survival. But through the eyes of faith, God says, I'm going to drag you from the hiding into the center stage. And I'm going to use you with mere 300 men to bring the kind of a deliverance for the nation of Israel nobody could have ever imagined. You see, Isaiah chapter 9 tells us that God is that quarterback that throws the Hail Mary at the end of human history and scores a touchdown. And friends, the question that it asks us on this Christmas season is do we believe that God? Do we believe that God who can bear his arm, who can write three words, And who can control the destiny of the most powerful tyrant in the world? That he can take care of your life. Corrie Ten Boom says this. She says, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to the known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to the known God. And I'm going to end with this. The Leningrad blockade that we started. It is a picture of an incredible, magnificent trust. Trust that as we as Christians look at it, we say it's a little bit misplaced. It's trust in what the country stood for. You see, in the midst of this 900 days of struggle, 900 days of sheer survival, they never gave up hope. And one of the stunning examples of the people of Leningrad never losing hope was that one of the men that were stuck in the city during the blockade was a guy by the name of Dmitry Shostakovich. And he was one of the most famous Russian composers of the 20th century. And during the blockade, he produced one of his masterpieces that is referred to the Seventh Symphony. And the decision was made that they were going to play, there was going to be a live performance of the Seventh Symphony in Leningrad during the blockade while people in hundreds in droves are falling down on the ground and dying of starvation. 
But how do you do that during a constant, relentless bombardment from the Nazi artillery? And you see what they did? They put together the scrap orchestra that was going to be led by Shostakovich himself. The musicians were given extra portion of 500 grams of bread each in order to beef up their strength to be able to play. And then Commander Zhukov, the commander of the Soviet army, said that the Russian soldiers in the front lines would do everything they can to sustain the German military machine from bombardment from, for 80 minutes so that the performance could go on without interruption. And that became known as 80 minutes of silence. One of the most stunning things was that this music was blaring through loudspeakers in the front lines, letting the Germans hear that the Leningrad would not surrender. And when I look at that, this picture of 80 minutes of silence, the effort, the tenacious perseverance that it took from the civilians and from the military working together, to me is a picture of what I long for. I long for our movement coordinating our efforts. I long for our movements living our life in such a way that the world around us will have 80 minutes of silence to be able to hear the music of the gospel. Men and women who passionately love Jesus, they put all our efforts, all our gifts, all our talents on the line so that the world may know it's only rightful king. So that the world may know that there is a wonderful counselor who is a mighty God, who is the father forever, who is the supreme authority who can bring peace. A king who can bear his arm, write three words on a wall, and make the tyrants lose control of their bodies. But even more, a king who would bear both of his arms and will hang on a cross so that you and I can spend eternity with him. That is where Christmas is taking us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we're grateful for who you are, that you are indeed a mighty king, that you are powerful and you are glorious. And we cannot wait to see you face to face. And until then, Lord, would you give us strength to live the 80 minutes of silence so that the world might know you. Amen.